0: Hi, everybody. You are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Today, we've got a bonus episode for you. It's my conversation with Hetty McKinnon from the Cherry Bomb Cooks and Books Festival, held last month at the new Ace Hotel Brooklyn. Hetty is a cookbook author, recipe developer, lover of vegetables, a podcaster, and an indie magazine publisher. She and I talked about her latest cookbook titled To Asia with Love, the topic of representation and more. I always love talking to Hetty, and I'm happy to share our conversation with you in just a few minutes. Today's show is presented by Queserai Campozola Cheese and Modern Sprout. Modern Sprout's mission is to uncomplicate indoor gardening. I love my houseplants, but I was not born with a green thumb, and I'm glad Modern Sprout is around to help folks like me. When we last talked about Modern Sprout, I had ordered two of their hydroponic grow kits. And just yesterday, I set up my cilantro kit on my windowsill. You could see the pictures on my Instagram story. It could not have been easier. Modern Sprout is offering Radio Cherry Bomb listeners 15% off with code RCB15. Head on over to ModSprout.com and pick up a grow kit like mine or one of the thoughtfully bundled gift sets featuring accessories and tools for crafting a botanical lifestyle. Maybe check out the Growing Gourmet Kit. It comes with a self-watering basil grow kit, Modern Sprouts best-selling pruning shears, a tea towel with tips for using herbs, and an herb pull and pinch dish for harvesting. The kit is beautifully packaged and purposefully designed with plastic-free packaging. It is $65 and makes an amazing gift for yourself or someone you love. Be sure to use your radio cherry bomb code RCB15 for 15% off. Today's other sponsor is Serai Champignon, a 100-year-old cheese producer and maker of Cambazola, a cheese I happen to love very much. This fine cheese is made with Bavarian Alpine milk and crafted by master cheesemakers dedicated to using all natural ingredients and traditional methods to create one-of-a-kind cheeses. Cambazola, a triple cream soft ripened cheese with delicate notes of blue, is truly a cheese like no other. For a more intense experience, try Campbazola Black Label. Aged longer than Cambozola Classic, this bold and exceptionally creamy cheese was a 2020 best-in-class winner at the renowned World Championship Cheese Contest. I'd like to be a judge at the World Championship Cheese Contest. I'm just putting that out there. Anyway, from extraordinary cheese boards to remarkable recipes, Cambozola is a treasure too good not to share. Visit thisisfinecheese.com, that's thisisfinecheese.com, for recipes and pairings and to find Campozzola at a store near you. It's not blue, it's not brie, it's Cambazola. All right, some housekeeping. Don't forget, our Very Cherry Bomb Friendsgiving is underway. I interviewed Drew Barrymore yesterday to kick things off, and today marks the return of our all-star pie panel moderated by Jesse Sheehan of The Vintage Baker. We've got special events happening through next Friday, so visit cherrybomb.com to learn more about all the events we have planned. Our Friendsgiving festivities are free and open to all, thanks to our sponsors, Kerrygold, San Pellegrino, Sir Kensington's, California Prunes, Sequoia Grove Winery, and Cake Bread Cellars. Now, here's my conversation with Hetty McKinnon, from Cherry Bomb Cooks and Books at Ace Hotel Brooklyn. I want to start with this beautiful cover and the name of this book. It came out at a time when I feel like the world really needed a book titled To Asia With Love, and I would love to know how you came up with the
1: title. Yeah, I mean, that was really unexpected. Um, I knew I wanted to do an Asian book, and... I, the name of a book comes very quickly to me. Um, with the other three books, I actually had a name before I had a book, so that's usually how I start with a book. It's a name, it's a feeling, it's like the vibe of the story I want to tell. With this one, was even I kind of felt like with this book there was more at stake, you know. and I did want to really differentiate this book to the others, which are all one-word titles. Um, this one is... Actually, I got it from – all my works are kind of interrelated. You know, they're all weave together. And To Asia With Love was actually the name of my Asian chapter in Neighbourhood, my, my second book, Neighbourhood. So um, to me, it just really captured everything about what I wanted to say about not only the flavours of my childhood but the um, – I kind of felt this huge gratitude to growing up not only like with Chinese parents but this kind of culture, this Asian culture that perhaps I didn't always appreciate Growing up, if I'm going to be quite honest and just dive right in um, to why writing this book was so important to me. But I really wanted it to be a love letter. So hence there's a comma after Asia, which I always say to people when you're writing it, don't forget the comma, because it is it is like a love letter to me to, you know, all these, this, this the influence of Asian culture. Before we
0: jump into a few other things. I want to hear more about your mom and your dad because you write so evocatively about them in the yep. book and the family's food culture, yeah. which you didn't even, like you said, didn't even realize was a food culture necessarily yeah. when you were young. Uh, mean, tell us about your mom.
1: I definitely didn't appreciate it. I mean, my, my parents um, are from Guangdong province in south, southern China. They came to Australia in, my dad in the 50s, my mom in the early 60s, and they got married. Um, it was an arranged marriage, you know, like it was very, you know, kind of unfathomable to us now, but um, they settled in the suburbs of Sydney, had three children, I lived in the same house my entire life, and um, my mother was really kind of, she she is a remarkable person because she's had to live many lives, and kind of getting emotional, but many, you know, her life I don't really understand it um, in many ways because she was only educated till she was about fourteen, and then her life became about getting out of China, getting to a better place and so there was a long passage for her to get to australia my dad's passage was very different; he actually came to Australia as a student when he was a teenager with his dad so um, but you know immigrant history is really interesting when it's your parents because Um, My dad actually passed away when I was a teenager, and his story is this big, it's it's a story, it's like a big hole in my family history that I'll probably never really understand. Um, But my mum doesn't like to talk about her passage much because there's a lot of pain there, I think, and immigrants like to kind of look forward. So to dwell in the past is, it's almost like, bringing bad luck or something. It's almost like she just wants to to think about the future. So um, she gives me snippets every now and then of the things that she endured before getting to Australia. And, you know, my mum led a very – she never had the opportunity to work in Australia, so she was at home all the time. And so every memory I have with her is of her cooking – really I mean when she was awake she was doing something to do with food whether that was you know she'd wake up in the morning she'd be already making these elaborate there's a breakfast chapter in this book it's all savory mostly savory breakfasts so she'd be making you know fried rice or noodles or you know this macaroni soup which is this kind of Cantonese dish and um you know at the time I just kind of thought oh it's so annoying that she has to make all this food for breakfast like just wants cereal or toast, but she's like, just, you know, forcing us, all all this food on us, and so I guess that kind of sums up the way I saw her attitude to food, like it was just so excessive, and um, always cooking, always shopping for food, my dad actually worked at the markets, and so there was just literally food all over the house, like fresh produce, and so, um, yeah, it was this I didn't understand it. And then it was only now, really, it took a long time for me to understand it. Um, And it was really, really moving to New York. Well, actually, before that, it was starting to cook um, because I had this salad business in Sydney where I had road salads around on my bike to my local neighbourhood, which community is about that, that business. And she would come over when I was cooking and she was meant to be babysitting, but she would actually... Um, wash vegetables or really tell me I wasn't washing vegetables properly I wasn't chopping properly and then you know that time was at the at the time I thought it was kind of annoying but it was really important because it really made me see her in a different way it's like oh wow she's talking to me like I'm one of her friends and I saw just how much knowledge she had how much lived experience she had um, and you know she was recommending ingredients for me to use and it, was, it really brought us closer together. And it was food that really brought us closer together and established for the first time, you know, a common language between the two of us. Because I do speak Cantonese, but not well enough to have really deep conversations. So, um, yeah, food really brought us together and it really made me appreciate the things that she did, um, the lengths that she went to. And it made me see that what she was doing by cooking for us such... In such so ferociously, you know, cooking, you know, know, so much. I think that was her way of um, staying connected to her homeland, keeping those traditions alive for us. That were growing, you know, we were growing up in a vastly different experience and world that she experienced. So the food was just really her way of, you know, bringing her her world into ours. And so it took me a long time to understand that and to come around to that and. I guess it's all in the book. <laughs> um,
0: I want to talk about your dad. Also, you mentioned that you lost your dad way too young. Um, but there is a big part of him in this book, and I'm going to pivot to talking about the design of the book for a second. Can you tell us how the special way your dad is represented in this yeah. book? Yeah.
1: My dad, um, he, as, as I mentioned, he worked at the markets, and but he was an avid amateur photographer. He had cameras all over the house and... Um, actually inherited one of his, well, I didn't inherit it, I just took it, Um, it's one of his film cameras, so, uh, you know, my dad doesn't figure a lot in my work, he will, actually, you know, spoiler alert, but um, he, up until now, he hasn't been a huge part of the story because so much of my journey in food happened after he died, well, actually, so many of the things that I've done happened after he died, so... I really wanted a part of him in the book, so um, I took all the photos myself using his camera and a couple of other cameras too, um, and it's all on film, so it's uh, it was quite an endeavor. I didn't think that my publishers would agree to it, and it's the first time in my life I did this whole mood board for my publishers because I thought I would have to convince them to let me shoot this book on film myself because I'm actually not a photographer, but they agreed without even thinking about it because they just knew that that photography would be part of the story. So, yeah,
0: it's such a beautiful book. And and the first time I looked through it, you know, I looked through it before I read it, and then when I read that it was your dad's camera, it just takes on a whole yeah. other meaning. I mean, the book is a love letter in so many layered ways to so many things. Um, let's talk about some of the recipes because people love you and your recipes, Hedy. Um, I always ask what's the most sentimental recipe in a cookbook, but I'm guessing every single one of these is sentimental to you for different reasons.
1: Yeah, I, I do have the most sentimental one, and it's um, the steamed water egg custard, called Sui dan, which um, translates to water egg. And it's actually, you know, it's the, the ingredient, it's the recipe with the least ingredients in the book, um, water, salt, egg, but it was the hardest recipe I've been trying to cook this recipe since I left Australia which was six years ago and I've published the recipe before in Peddler and it was not like it was not where it is now it's been it's taken me a really long time to get this right It's basically a savory steamed egg It's very fashionable at the moment on Instagram because there's a microwave version um, but I would never put mine in the microwave um, because it just means the texture of it is so silky and it's wobbly without – it's just like just on the cusp of being cooked. And my mum made this dish for me a lot growing up, particularly if – I mean, basically she would make it and just put it in front of me and I would just eat that with rice. Um, so it has – so it just conjures so many memories and um, the texture of it. I just couldn't get it right. It was like the cursed recipe for me for many years. And I just didn't know what I was doing wrong. And then uh, there's been so many phone calls about this recipe. And, you know, my mum takes quite – it takes a lot of delight when I can't cook something that is one of her recipes. So she would just be, you know, just saying, oh, yeah, it's so easy. I don't know why, I don't know why you can't do it. And she would do this, she'd always say, you know, low heat, low, low and slow, low and slow. And I just that was one detail I just wasn't paying attention to for some reason. I was very, you know, when you write recipes, it's all about formulas and it's about, you know, amounts. And so a lot of the time she so for this particular recipe, she based it on a dish. So it's the fish dish. She used the fish dish put two you know you do your eggs and then you add the water up to when it's like you know the first ridge on your finger the water gets up to there and that's how much water you use and I'm like I can't, I don't even know what to do with this so luckily I had the fish dish with me I brought it with me from Australia when you say fish dish I, I'm envisioning <laughs> a
0: dish shaped like a fish what oh no it's a dish,
1: dish? With, it's just a round dish but it has a fish painted in it it's a it's a Chinese dish. I think when I Instagrammed it, actually, a lot of people said, oh, I have that dish. So it's, it's not unique to my family. Um, but that's how she refers to dishes. Like there's another one called the old man dish, which has an old man painted on it. Um, so, yeah, like that's how she does her recipes. Or she, she did a recipe. She told me a recipe recently, and she said, it's a rice bowl full of flour. And I'm like, what rice bowl? Because all my rice bowls are different sizes. So, um, yeah, she's not a very reliable recipe developer. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, this dish, so I used, so I did, all, I actually, like, measured everything out, and then it's details, like, cooled, boiled water. And when I put that in a book. I actually put it in the book and people are like, why does it have to be boiled and then cooled? And she's convinced that this is the the secret because actually what it is, it is scientific. It, it's, um, it's basically like a particular temperature of water that allows the egg to emulsify with the water. So in her description, it's cooled, boiled water. And you know what? To be honest, I embrace all of that now. It's kind of crazy, but I think there is so much knowledge from our elders that is um, it it, it's based in on things that they've learned through the from their elders and through touch and through sight and they're things that we don't use enough in the kitchen so um, I embrace all of that in my cooking now and if she says use cool board water, that's what I'm going to use. And um, I still w- measure water for my rice when I cook my rice, you know, using the ridge on her, my finger because that's how she does it. Lots of Asian mums have different ways of measuring water for rice. But, um, yeah, anyway, then this dish, the, the steamed water egg custard, they've got to the point where I was like, I've tried everything and the only thing I haven't tried is the low and slow. And um, it actually happened by... Accident. I think I had the temperature on wrong and one day it came out perfect, just like hers. And um, it shows you I always have to listen to, mum's always right. So that is probably the most sentimental dish for me, um, just because it just has so many memories and it was so hard to get right. You know, it's really weird, like taking another generation's recipes and trying to translate them to, um, you know, a modern cookbook. And I always try and do that in, you know, I don't often do recipes exactly the way my mum does them. I mean, she, and I do that, I, do, I, I don't do it consciously, but I do think it is conscious in a way because i you know, they're her recipes and that was her um, expression. And so I want to bring my expression to it too. So well, I've never asked you, what did your mum think of the book? Oh, my mom is like, (laughs) she's so unique. (laughs) I I wouldn't even know. It's like when people say it was interesting. (laughs) Basically, yes. Um, She does not give praise at all, really. And it's really, I mean, she gives my children praise, but not me. And so, um, yeah, she, she hasn't really said that much about it, actually. She's kind of unimpressed by all of this. Which is fine because if she was impressed, I would be surprised. I remember for one of the, um, I think when Community, because I self published Community originally and then it came out um, nationally with a publisher. And when we got the revised edition, she was with me when the courier arrived with the very first copy. And she says something like, Oh, the paper's nice, or something like that. It was just, you know, really like, you know, didn't think anything of. Anything else, really, so, but it's fine, I mean, I, I kind of like it because it keeps it real, right? <laughs> so funny, um I need to ask about your love of vegetables, oh yeah where I consider
0: hetty like the salad queen in my life. Where does this love of vegetables
1: come from? honestly I think it comes from my dad, and it's been something I've been exploring Carrie um I, I didn't notice so th- <laughs> th- i didn't plant i didn't it's, plant that uh, question yeah, I mean, I've always love vegetables I mean my I think you know I've, I I think about these things a lot guys um, it sounds weird I do think about vegetables a lot and I think of like why why things happen you know um, I've been a vegetarian since I was a teenager I, I wasn't before that so I have eaten you know many different types of dishes and meats um, but you know making that decision to switch to a kind of a vegetable-based diet was really easy for me. Um, I do think it's because I've just always grown up with vegetables. My sister's also a vegetarian. And it just makes me feel, like, so excited to cook. And I think, you know... Vegetables are inherently—you've got to think about vegetables in a really different way to like a piece of meat. Um, It does require you to be more creative in a way, and and I'm not saying that it's you have to labor over every dish, but it's about thinking about it. You know, like I think so many in a lot of cuisine, you know, the vegetable is like the side dish, and it's the thing that people are giving all the attention to the meat and then the, the vegetables are kind of forgotten and I think that I firmly believe you. whatever you do with a piece of meat, you can do with vegetables, you know, and in terms of like cooking method and, um, you know, high heat, vegetables love high heat and it's just, I find the world of vegetables so exciting and I'm always learning new things about it and particularly like since uh, with, you know, the newer work that I'm doing, it's like bringing it more into the, the Asian food that i I grew up eating, and how I bring even more vegetables into that, so I just think it's um it just makes me so happy and thrilling to it's so thrilling to be able to make like a broccoli really exciting where uh Where do you shop for your vegetables in the city? I think New York is so amazing like I remember when I first got here, I could not believe you have these green markets all around the city. And, you know, from that produce that's been grown locally. I mean, we have markets in Sydney, but not like this, where, you know, during the week and, you know, they're pretty well-priced. So I do go to green markets. I have two near me on the weekends. Um, I just – I go to Union Square when I can. I love Union Square Market. It's just – it's brilliant.
0: What are you obsessed with right now? The season's fully changing right now. So we've got a lot of beautiful new things at the farmer's markets. I
1: mean – well, on Wednesday, I went to Union Market, and it was so amazing. It was, like, probably the most amazing day I'd ever seen there because it's summer right now in October. So, there was tomatoes and peaches next to, um, you know, squash or pumpkin. Um, and it was like incredible. It was, like, you know, all four seasons were available at the markets. Um, but I love... I'm I'm really in love with the honey nut squash, you know, the little baby ones that fit in the palm of your hand, and they're so sweet, and I'm kind of obsessed with those right now. Tell us what you're doing with them. I'm just – well, the other day, what did I – I roasted them. I just kind of peeled them and then just roasted them whole, um, and I put some sort of like baharat or something, like a spice on it, and with I just have it with tahini, I think, and, and chickpeas, of course. But that was my meal.
0: I want to uh, switch topics again. Um, I mentioned that uh, there's a great story in the new issue that Audrey wrote, and it's an interview with Hetty and with Betty Liu, who wrote My Shanghai. Some of you might have that book, and it's really wonderful. And a lot of it was about representation in cookbooks and what's going on in the world of cookbooks right now. And it was interesting. I don't know how many of you caught Zoe, Janyo's talk earlier about cookbooks, and um, it's an interesting moment for the cookbook world, Um, and it was a topic you really wanted to talk about.
1: We did, and I'd like to thank Kerry for giving us the space to tell it, because I'm just going to say to you now, it wasn't easy to have that piece published. Um, A lot of people said no to it, and Betty and I, um, Betty Lou and I, we thought that everybody would want this story, you know? Like, this is, yeah, I mean, it was... um, we got turned down by a lot of big media and to me that says a lot about the industry and about how willing people, how much people are really gonna change, how much media is really gonna change. The problem is, you know, decision makers, this is this is a topic that will it's gonna make people uncomfortable. And but it's gonna make it takes people to feel uncomfortable for real change. And so I thank Kerry for allowing us the free reign to just talk. That was how that article came together. But the genesis of this story was we we noticed in the spring of 2021, there was, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was suddenly like two or three cookbooks and some that had come actually in the later parts of 2020. But books that were actually written about the Chinese diaspora or the Asian diaspora, but Chinese diaspora actually, um, about Different, really personal stories written by Chinese people, and I'm sorry, but that was actually really unusual and rare to see. That there's a lot of Asian books out there, there's a lot of Chinese books out there, but there are not a lot written by Asian Chinese people. And so we wanted to tell this story about not not really even a negative story, but it was actually a celebration story about how there are so many. Betty and I, specifically, she's from Shanghai. My family is from Guangdong, like north and south. Her book to me taught me so much about my own culture, and that's pretty amazing to me. And we wanted to celebrate that and talk about how there are so many different stories within one culture. And um, we also wanted to talk about, you know, Brandon Jew's Mr. China Mr. Jew's um, Chinatown, the San Francisco book. Um, and there's lots of, and we just really wanted to celebrate that. And it was really hard for us to get this story out there, um, even during a time when there was all about, you know, stopping Asian hate and and amplifying the voices of not only Asian Chinese people, but all people of colour. And um, it was really an interesting experience to try and tell that story. But we, we did want to really kind of raise that, you know, about it, it's... How do you look we, – we wanted – I mean, when you tell a story that you've lived, it's very different to an outsider telling that story. And, you know, I can think of many awarded and lauded Chinese cookbooks that were uh, – are very well researched. I'm not saying they're not great books, but they're written from an outsider's perspective. And so what we bring to these books is heart and – um and history and a real personal narrative. Like this book to me, I'm not trying to sum up or um, represent Asian food. I'm just representing what Asian food means to me and I think that is really an important step in cookbooks in general is embracing like not having one book represent a whole people, a whole nation, a whole culture it is individual stories that will come together to make that that make one story but it's lots and it's millions of individual stories but at the same
0: time i think it was betty who said this you know when when she was pitching her book i think she got turned down several times and was told more than once we already have an asian book an asian yeah. book yeah
1: i mean i i heard that in in march of 2020 when um, I think it had, I don't remember exactly the context, but it was something to do with Asian, like releasing this book in the US. Um, the words the words said to me were, there's a perception that Asian books don't sell. And meanwhile, I'm seeing there are Chinese books who winning James Beard Awards. And so I'm like, this does not make sense to me. And this was a year ago, really, a year and a half ago. So this um, attitude is, is very real, and I think that we shouldn't think that it's not there just because people say, oh, we're we're representing now, and it's like, what does that actually mean, you're representing? Because I'm just going to say, you know, cookbook publishers often have a list and they see, oh, we have one African book already. We have one Chinese book already. That's it. And, like, that book's meant to represent an entire culture. I mean, so I think that there was that attitude, there probably still is that attitude, and it's going to be a long way until we get to the spot where we actually understand what we're trying to, what sort of stories we're trying to tell and how we can tell them. Um, And I think the only way to do that is really to have decision-makers who understand, you know, what these stories are and how rich these stories are. So it's a really interesting time in cookbooks, I think, right now. I have seen... Some changes, but you know, I want to know the motivations behind those changes too, and how that looks kind of um, moving into the future. Uh, there are so many stories out there, and I guess you know, pedler was my way of just um, really pedler my this little journal that I do, this printed magazine, uh, was a result of frustration, really, of not really seeing the types of stories that I wanted to read about which is just you know stories about small memories rituals um traditions that are not really represented in in media um, in any way and i think the industry is moving towards that i'm have seen i mean you know you would agree there's so many more zines now that are you know covering you know it's issues funny, like that because
0: you you use the term decision makers in terms of people who let stories be told and you could easily have used the term gatekeeper mm. in terms of who lets story be told and i wanted to use you as an example of someone who didn't necessarily wait for the decision makers or the gatekeepers because
1: you mentioned you did self publish which book did you originally self publish and why um community i i love self publishing like this was like my not i wouldn't say dream but God, what a joy to bring a book together exactly the way you want to do it. I mean, honestly, I had no um, aspirations to be a cookbook author and I had this business and people were asking me for recipes and I'd never written recipes un- until then. So I wrote these recipes down um, and they were photographed and I-, I really wanted to just create a beautiful book for my customers. And so that was really the the end point for me is like, I had to print a thousand copies because that was the minimum print run. And I really thought I would have these books forever in my because I, I made space in my lounge room. You know, I lived in this small house in Sydney. So I really didn't think that it would be anything beyond just a book for my customers. And it was just this crazy weird thing that happened that I was getting all these orders online and I became I was shipping them out all over Australia. Um I think even one to, I think um, Violet Bakery, Claire Patak bought a copy of one of the original ones. And so it was like, I don't know how people even heard about it because I wasn't really even on social media back then. But um, anyway, yeah, so I I loved it. I mean, that was my first experience of publishing and you can make money from it. I'm just going to say, you know, you can make money from it and you can, I I really, I love that what you said, that self-publishers are going to change the um the industry because you know when you publish with a publisher and I've been really lucky I will say this my publisher in Australia who I originate with a very it's very collaborative and we we talk uh, the d- design is so important to me of books so we talk about every single thing you know the fonts the paper the where the letter goes every single thing so I'm really lucky but I know lots of people don't have that Um, particularly with some US publishers. So, um, you know, self-publishing is, it can be really rewarding as long as, you know, and like with everything, it's like the things that you don't think about that really get you down, like distribution, like, you know, I, I still send out my own copies of Peddler sometimes. I do have a distribution house now, but I still do some of my own. Some people call me sometimes email means I really need this so I'll do it because it's faster Um, and most of it's not glamorous but it can be really rewarding in terms of giving you the book that you want and it's nothing stopping you from taking that book to a publisher and say hey look what I can do because I think I would really recommend that to people because sometimes it's really frustrating for anyone who wants to write a cookbook of getting the book that you want getting telling your story exactly the way you want to tell it with the recipes you want um, sometimes some editors, you know, micromanage down to, like, which recipes you're allowed to keep in, what the book is called, what the, t- the chapters are called, um, what your recipe index looks like, you know, every single thing. So, self-publishing really gives you that freedom and it, it has so much more of the personality of the author in there because you've been able to make all these decisions yourself. Um, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it is, it can be really rewarding and, I would self-publish any day if people would let me, but I'm not really allowed to anymore. (laughs) Uh, Well, well, I have an agent now, and so she's always telling me, you know, you'll ruin things if you self-publish, but I would still... I was just saying to someone yesterday, I would still do it tomorrow if I had the the time, and, like, now I would do so many other things, so it is easier. Peddler Mm. is your
0: version of that.
1: Exactly. And that's really why... You know, people say to me, you know, when I first launched Peddler in 2017, people said, why don't you just take this to a a publisher and do it? And I was like, but I want to do it. You know, I want to do, I want to, you know, look at paper and I want to decide on design and I want to be, you know, just spearheading, you know, Peddler is so freeing because there are no commercial pressures. We can put any recipe in there and we don't care if you can get the ingredients or not and um, it's, they're written purely as the author wants to write it. And that, That's very freeing. It
0: is. I, I think we
1: ran a recipe
0: once in Cherry Bomb from Chef Dominique Crenn that had a, an aquarium pump as one of the ingredients and I was like, you know what? We're probably the only magazine that would run that so we're just going to go for it.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a real respect to whoever's writing the recipe and their family recipes, and it's a real chance to just, you know, show a different side. I mean, there is. I mean, I know when I write a book with a big publisher that it's always authentic because I'm allowed to do that, but I do realise that it needs to sell to, in many parts of the world, in, with people who have, you know, varying access access to food and ingredients, and so those things are front of mind. So you have got to be like thinking about it's like a balancing act all the time of writing something that you still feels really true to the recipe you want to write, but is accessible. Because I don't write books to be collectors' items. I want people to cook, and I think that's why I'm always sharing people's i mean you see a lot of people cook my, from my books and they are there to be cooked from they're not there to be coffee table books even though they're pretty but you know
0: <laughs> so you mentioned your dinners can be a little bit of a mishmash yes based on what you're recipe testing that day have your children gotten used to this way of life and dinner
1: yeah yeah <laughs> they don't have any choice but um Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this recently because, you know, like, I have so many, like, iconic dishes from childhood that are really, like, ingrained in my brain um, and in my soul. And then I think them – like, we do have some that they are regulars, but they're always eating, like, so many – I wouldn't say strange, but, like, you know, just mishmash things, particularly when I'm recipe testing, like, for a book that's – there's a lot of that, so – I often wonder what their memories are gonna be and whether they'll have even a favorite dish. Because I think if you ask them, they couldn't tell you what their favorite dish is other than pasta, but like, which kid doesn't love pasta?
0: They'll be sitting here in 20 years talking a book about the book that they wrote based <laughs> on you, Hedy, right?
1: What <laughs> exactly. Would,
0: what would the title of that book oh, be? Oh man,
1: yeah, I don't wanna know.
0: This is so beautifully written. I mean, I'm, I like to read cookbooks, probably more than I like to cook from them. You're not gonna wanna hear that. But this is beautifully written, and the the parts about your, your childhood I just really found so moving and so incredible.
1: I mean, I think that you can look at a cookbook success in many ways. You know, like some people say, oh, if it sells lots, it's successful. Um, but I think that for me personally, I want people to cook from it and to nurture their families with it. That's what's important to me. Um, and as long as people do that, i'm i'm happy to me sales figures and all that yeah they they like people always talk about this but to me it's not important to me it's like have i affected someone's lives have i given them a moment in which they've shared a meal with their family and they've enjoyed that moment like these are the things that are important to me um other people will go how much press did you get you know were you on the you know the the list are so like everyone gets very stressed about the lists. Um, was I on BA's list? Was I on the New York Times list? Like all these things are really important to some people. And it makes sense because it's those things are important. Um, so I think that all authors and all publishers will have their different kind of ideas on what makes a successful cookbook. But for me, really honestly, I just want people to cook meals that they enjoy for their family. Like that's why my... my Main thing, be, I could be smarter with some of my titles. Um, I could put vegetarian all over the top and that would, you know, be really attractive to a lot of people. But that's just not my style. I mean, I want to tell a story with my books and um, I will sacrifice sales for that. <laughs> I don't know if I do sacrifice sales, but sometimes I, I think I could be smarter marketing-wise. But for me, story comes first.
0: That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Hetty McKinnon for joining me. Check out Hetty's latest book, To Asia with Love, at your favorite local bookstore. Thank you to Kesari Cambazola and Modern Sprout for supporting today's episode. And don't forget, a very Cherry Bomb Friendsgiving is underway. Head on over to cherrybomb.com to learn more. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Thank you to our assistant producer, Jenna Sadu. And thanks to you for listening. You're the bomb.